Hey everyone, this is Cobain. Today we're going to be asking the question, from a Christian perspective, are we living in a dream world? Related to that, we will be discussing the very widespread, indeed curiously widespread, tradition of cultures in antiquity that sacrifice was the instrument by which the world continued to exist. Before getting into the main discussion today, I just wanted to say that if you enjoy these videos, find them helpful, and would like to ensure their continued and consistent production in the future, if your finances are sound, please consider becoming a monthly patron in the link below. The top tier guarantees, at least once per month, a one-on-one -on -one phone, Zoom, or other audio conversation of at least one hour, though it is almost always longer. In fact, I don't believe I have had one of these conversations yet, which has gone under two hours, though, of course, if you prefer to go short, that's fine too. Of course, there is no extra charge, no matter how long the call goes. I'm not going to nickel and dime you. Uh, the conversations uh, are free to, uh, in, in the conversations, you're free to discuss any issues or questions you have, as long as I think I have something to say that is worth saying. Uh, I'll also send you the recording. Uh, all tiers provide certain exclusive videos, though my goal is to produce most of this content uh, so that it is available uh, for free to a general audience. To continue to feasibly do that, however, and to reduce advertisements, your patronage is essential and profoundly appreciated. You can also make a one-time contribution using the Super Chat function during the premiere of this video or request my Venmo information. Some people have asked about that as well. So if that's what you'd like to do, free to do that. Uh, it is my intent, if there is growth in patronage, to begin reducing and ultimately removing advertisements, which I very much dislike, but which are presently necessary to meet my financial obligations. Uh, in any case, I am very thankful, truly, for everyone who watches these videos, uh, participates in the discussion, and above all, prays for me. Your prayers are very valuable to me, um, so please do include my name, Seraphim, uh, in your prayer lists and in the list of names commemorated at the Sunday Divine Liturgy. But even just saying, Lord, help Seraphim right now is uh, very, very valuable to me. Uh, so, on that note, let's begin with prayer. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who loves mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, so that trampling down on carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. Unto thee do we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is everlasting, and that only good and life-creating spirit, both now and ever, and to the ages of ages. Amen. So, the cosmos, the creation, is a theater for revealing the glory of God and its reality as the cosmos that is it's having the qualities which make it that organism which we call the cosmos that reality is only possible through its carrying out that disclosure 
That is, it is in its internal nature an instrument by which the glory of God is declared. And so it is fully realized as totally and perfectly actual, as really real, when it carries out that disclosure. For example, when we have a mirror, we measure its success as a mirror according to the degree it reflects actual light. It is only a mirror in and through the fact that it reflects light. If it ceased to actively have that quality and that relation to everything which surrounds it, it would cease to be a mirror. In other words, its relationship is intrinsic and internal to its being what it is. Now, when we realize that this is true of the cosmos, that it is, as Father Dimitri Stanloi says, a theater for the disclosure of God's Trinitarian life, that is, his life as communion, uh, we must conclude that our current world, as it presently exists, is, in many respects, mysteriously unreal, or more precisely, it is only partially real. According to the, uh, I think, most natural and uh, certainly the uh, historical interpretation of 20th century physics, uh, the potential of a particle, uh, and thus of all matter, to take on a specific quality in contrast to other qualities, well, that potential only is realized in its actuality by the joining of its being to a person who observes it. This is the classic collapse of the wave function. So uh, when a thing becomes more and more real, it becomes more and more specific. It excludes most of the possibilities which had existed prior to its actualization. So if you think about the development of a human being, when a human being is first conceived, he or she looks indistinguishable from every other fetus which is conceived in the womb of its or, or his or her mother. Um, but as the person develops and grows, he or she becomes more and more distinctly him or herself. At birth, the child looks quite similar to most other children in uh, uh, its place of birth, but you notice some distinctive features already. You can generally identify its basic pattern of ancestry and national background. Uh, you can identify traces of features that are present in the faces of the parents, but only traces. And so you see that part of the distinctness of a self is actually the unique ways in which it is likened to other selves, which significantly undermines or at least relativizes this idea that the distinctness of a subject is in opposition to its unity with other subjects. According to the Christian interpretation of the world, that is the inverse of the truth. 
A thing is distinct in and only in its unity with other things. Its distinctness is constituted out of its mode of unity. C.S. Lewis, I think, accurately points out that much of what we take in our fallen state to be ourselves is really not ourselves at all. It's exactly what makes us utterly indistinguishable from everybody else. Everybody is obsessed with uh, sex and uh, television and uh, uh, chicken fingers. But as we grow in grace, as Christ lives in us, as we give up ourselves to Christ, it is only in that giving up that we truly become really ourselves. And we become more ourselves than we ever imagined was possible. And this happens as we dwell in the mind of God, as God knows us into existence. And this principle, which we can see in the development of an individual human being, in the development of human nations, the human family as a whole, we can see this principle extending from top to bottom in the entire creation, whether we're talking about it considered as a unified whole or whether we are simply speaking of the realm of subatomic particles. So we know, if modern physics is correct, that the great majority of uh, space that makes up a apparently solid object is empty space. We perceive a thing to be very solid, but in reality, at least when we mean by reality, its underlying physical state in terms of the proportion of empty space to particles, uh, the, uh, they're ghost-like, they're wisps of wind. The prophets speak of the creation in this age as uh, being like grass that grows and renew it is renewed in the morning, but in the evening it fades and withers. Well, how can Jacob stand? Amos asks, if Jacob is indeed part of this world. And Isaiah gives us the answer when he says, the word of our God shall stand forever, the logos of our God in the Greek language. And it, that is the significant thread in the background of John's gospel. In the beginning was the um, logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. It is the logos who stands and gives life and reality to everything else in the creation because God is the existent one and God thus endows everything else which does exist with existence. The apparent emptiness of most so-called solid objects corresponds beautifully with a key spiritual principle. We say that God has no body but this is only because what we call a body is a pale shadow of his intense concreteness. God is not less than a body, but infinitely more than a body. He is no ethereal mist floating vaguely and invisibly through space, but the infinitely thick rock of ages. He is the most solid of all things, such that in contact with any creature, 
it is always the creature who is changed and shaped. It is never the God of Israel. Just as a diamond can only be scratched by that which matches its thickness and its solid constitution. When God enters into the world, everything is shaped after the shape of his being and never the other way around. The question for us is whether we will utilize our power of willing to freely embrace that inevitable, inescapable destiny. In the scriptures, death is always spoken of as that which precedes resurrection. After all, the day does not begin with the morning, it begins with the evening. The psalmist says that our present age is like a dream, and it is identified and marked out as a dream when the era of the redemption comes. This is what Psalm 126 verse 1 says, When the Lord restored the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. The redemption of the world in the work of Jesus and its implementation in the church through the Holy Spirit. This is the good dream that is made real. It's fascinating that the Hebrew word, and I just learned this just now, the Hebrew word that is used to describe dreaming can also refer to a state of health or strength and what is health but wholeness it is integrity it is a thing that is as it is supposed to be a dream is that which occurs in the mind and when we ask the question what is it which distinguishes our dreams from our waking life it's the relative instability of the dreams things are always popping in and out uh, locations are not stable things are bubbling up and bubbling away disappearing reappearing there seems to be little intrinsic connection linking all the various parts together into a single organic whole now the waking world is relative to our dreams far more stable but it too is a realm of appearance and disappearance things come into existence and pass out of existence but according to the psalmist and according to the whole message of the scriptures god who has known the world into existence who has endowed it with being by realizing an idea present in his mind god will unite the world with its archetype present in himself by pouring himself into the creation and thus, it will be recognized that what came before was but a dream. Death precedes resurrection, evening precedes morning, and sleep precedes waking. And so you see throughout the scriptures that sleep is an analogy to death. We have the state we are in when we dream contains a number of curious analogies to the state of the disembodied soul. I've noticed that in dreams where I become aware that I'm dreaming, attempting to utilize uh, the physical representation of my limbs just doesn't work. You have to think your way around. It is your thought which moves you and not your uh, physical appendages because, in fact, the physical appendages uh, are not truly present. And it's curious to me that 
if a dream, if all a dream is, is a projection of things that we have learned by rote habit in our waking life, if that's it, then why are they, why are dreams so consistent, not only in one person, but among many people, why are they so consistent in ways which have no direct parallel in waking life? I just raised that as a question. I don't have a direct answer to give to you at this point, but I think it's something that uh, should be thought about. So a dream is marked out as a dream by its deep instability, the things that pass in and out of being. And in the world to come, when God is, in the words of St. Paul, all in all, the creation will awake from its slumber and it will become infinitely and totally real. The Hebrew word for glory, kavod, is a very close relative of the word for weight. So in the book of Exodus, we are told that Pharaoh made his heart glorious. This is one of the phrases that is translated as he hardened his heart. That's a legitimate English translation, but literally many times it is said that Pharaoh made his heart glorious. And when you understand that glorious, well, this is also a way of saying heavy, we see the pun. Pharaoh makes his heart so glorious, so heavy, that he sank into the sea as a stone right to the bottom of the Red Sea. And this analogy between glory and uh, and weight is something which actually uh, is used in the English language as well. It's one of these natural inbuilt analogies which is in our programming as it were and so it emerges in many many languages. Apparently as far as I am aware because English and Hebrew are obviously not of the same language family. As far as I am aware th uh, this is this relationship in our just patterns of speech seems to be relatively uh, independent. Uh, so if you think about glory, what exactly is glory? Glory is that which makes an impression on people. I mean, this is the whole idea of uh, the royal setting. Uh, it is designed to create an impression of intense importance on those who are present at court, which will provoke, in a good way, a, a certain sort of distinctive behavior. It will provoke a profound thoughtfulness and consideration of all of the subtleties of one's behavior. One will no longer act uh, half unconsciously out of mere habit, but one will become purposeful in one's activity. One will become aware of the pattern of one's breathing, how fast or slow one is walking. And uh, this, while it can create problems, especially for the person who doesn't know what to do with it, uh, in itself, this total purposefulness in every activity, whether activities we consider conscious and of the will or activities we consider unconscious, uh, this purposefulness mirrors the purposefulness of God who has no subconscious but knows himself perfectly and comprehensively to the deepest depths of his infinite being and who does all things knowing precisely why he is doing them. God never simply acts out of impulse and says, well, why did I do that? God knows everything uh, that he's doing. He knows exactly why he is doing it, and he knows that he will bring out of it that which he intends to bring out. The entirety of our bodies, from the rhythm of our heartbeat to the flitting of electrical signals from neuron to neuron will ultimately come under the 
unified exercise of our power of willing. And that's a state of being that at this point seems almost incomprehensible to us, but that is a way of showing us just how high and lofty is the gracious calling to which God has called every human creature. So to get back to the point about weight, just think about heavy, right? He has a weighty, his opinion has weight, it's a common way of speaking. In the affairs of state, a particular figure is regarded as especially weighty or a particular idea is considered to uh, be of very weighty importance. So we see that the notion of glory, the notion of royalty, the notion of sovereignty, the notion of reality, in addition to being linked in the Hebrew language, they are also linked in the analogies that we most naturally reach for. And this is a point that I made in one of my videos under the apophatic theology category which is that our language from top to bottom is run through with all sorts of analogies and likenings. It's simply that we're so used to them that we uh, don't even notice how they run through absolutely everything that we say. So in the eighth day, in the resurrection of the dead, after the revelation of Christ in all things, the New Testament speaks more often of the revealing of Christ than of his return, though the language of return is, of course, not absent. But the revelation of Christ is spoken of because Christ, in his ascension and after his conquest of the grave, has gone down to the lowest point of creation, has ascended all the way up to the top, has sent his spirit into the world to perpetuate his presence, and so Christ is in fact still present, still working. In fact, he's more powerfully and more presently working than he was during the Old Covenant. It is through the church and in the world to come, he will be revealed in all things, and all things will be shown forth according to the infinitely particular and perfect purpose which God implemented through every creature great and small from the greatest king to ever live according to our perhaps standards of fame and greatness to the smallest particle of dust god has done and is doing something glorious and that glory that weight it will flow into all things no creature will have even the slightest bit of empty space there will be no non-actuality to make up such emptiness. Instead, everything will be infinitely solid and yet infinitely in a swift and accelerating motion. So Maximus called the ever-moving rest. C.S. Lewis in Space Trilogy, as I've uh, called your attention to before, he's, uh, he has this brilliant analogy, or not analogy, but way, way of speaking. The faster a thing is, the more near it is to being in two places at once, right? So it moves uh, from what point A to point B at a particular speed. And so 
uh, it is closer to being in both places at once than it was when it was moving more slowly. Now, as you accelerate upwards, eventually you get to a condition in which the subject of which we are speaking is in all places at once because he is flowing through all things such that he is so quick that he is at rest. And we see here that the ever-moving rest of the eschaton is the absolute inverse of the stasis of death, which is... And the coldness, which marks out death as what it is, it's the complete a thing. A thing is defined in its opposition to the one God, and yet God fills all things so that there's no room for any creature to exist in this rebellious state. And so they are uh, a walking negation. So in contrast to the dream world of today, the cosmos of the age to come is infinitely solid to the divine solidity of the rock of Israel. This language that scripture uses is not accidental. It's not a cute metaphor, and it's not a one-dimensional idea. In fact, the language in scripture, like the activity of God in general is infinitely purposeful and infinitely meaningful. And so we see that the insights of many aspects of contemporary physics, though undoubtedly there is still much to learn, but much of that which we have learned rolls beautifully into the theology of traditional Christendom, the theology of the church, the orthodox tradition, and Father Dimitrius Stanloi. Um, my favorite uh, dogmatic theologian of the last century, the 20th century, I should say, uh, Stenelloy uh, was particularly interested in this question. I, I really do urge you to consider his work. He was a man of great personal sanctity. He was a confessor. He was thrown in jail for the faith. Uh, at certain points in his life, he experienced the gift of unceasing prayer, uh, but he was also a great scholar. He worked with Elder Arseni Boka to translate many of the fathers into Romanian. He wrote a, uh, in English a six-volume dogmatic theology, uh, which is in English the, called The Experience of God. He was very thoroughly engaged with all of the great questions um, of the theology of the 20th century, offering answers which were at once uh, utterly faithful to the tradition and also brilliantly creative in the proper sense of that word. Uh, just as the true rest is an ever-moving rest, so also tradition authentically is a living tradition which is applying itself to every new question of the age. Of course, there's more to say. There's there's a lot of things you would have to clarify there, but I just mean it in the sense of St. Vincent of Larens in his Commonitorium. He speaks of the threefold rule of Orthodox faith, um, universality, antiquity, and consent. And if you continue reading, he will speak about the way in which tradition is both uh, consistent, totally identical from age to age, and it develops through time. And this, I think, corresponds to the development of the world in its potentiality to actuality in the Logos through the church. So the world is co-constituted by God uh, and man. Man whom God has freely chosen to make his partner, not only in creating and shaping the world in the coming ages, but he has actually joined with man in a mysterious way in his active sustenance of the creation in its existence from moment 
to moment. I've talked before about the way this is arguably evident in something like the Global Consciousness Project, which suggests that when the attention of a very substantial portion of the human family is focused on a particular event, let's say on September 11th, for example, uh, it generates observable and measurable and identifiable regular changes in the patterns that occur at the quantum level. I don't mean to go too hipster here. I'm every, I, I, I worry that whenever somebody brings quantum physics into a discussion that wasn't about quantum physics, they've jumped the shark, but I'm hoping that I can break the curse. The world will be fully the world when it is fully gathered into the interior life or the heart of man through the spirit who searches the deep things of God. So what about sacrifice? Well, we just described how God has freely co-constituted the world with man in a real and yet mysterious way. And a mystery means there's always more to know, not that we can know nothing at all, but that we can know an infinitely ascending height of knowledge. So man is not only God's partner in continuing the work of creation and glorification, uh, but the ongoing existence of the world is actually joined with the inner life of mankind so that the gathering up of all of the logi of creation, that is the ideas, the archetypes of creation, the distinctive qualities which make an individual creature uh, exactly what it is. So an elephant has is an instance of an elephant nature. A human being is an instance of a human, human nature which is possessed in common by all human beings. So the gathering up of all the logi of creation uh, into the memory of God. Remember we talked about how God remembered Noah and in that memory gave new birth to the world. Uh, all of this is done through the work of the church and this is the way in which God brings all things to glory. Let me just read you a beautiful passage from the letter to the Ephesians where Paul sets forth the grand vision of God's purpose for creation in Christ. Of this gospel, beginning in verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the nations the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, like a blueprint, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, remember Jesus says, nothing is hidden except that it might be revealed. It seems to me that Paul may be echoing the saying of Jesus here. So that through the church, the manifold, that is the many colored, the of uh, that which has profound and beautiful variety. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made, known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he, that is God, has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you see that the incarnation is the conduit through which the creation's purpose as creation is realized. It is the incarnation of the only begotten Son, consubstantial with the Father and the Spirit, 
that facilitates the unification of creation in a single organism. And that occurs because there is one church unified according to the oneness of God. Jesus says that he prays that his disciples might be one as he is one with the Father. That's a very profound statement when we really grapple with, with the implications of that. Uh, but the church actively lays hold of the world and brings it into its sacred space, thereby communicating the presence of God to even the most common of creatures. This is what the prophet Zechariah speaks of in the Messianic Age. He says, the bell of a horse will be engraved holy to the Lord. Well, holy to the Lord, that's what was engraved on the crown of the high priest. It's, this is the holiest object in Israel's whole uh, sacrificial or, or, or liturgical system. This is the corresponding piece of clothing to the holy of holies. And yet, that most common of objects shall be as holy as something which is in the holy of holies. That's how intensely God will dwell in all things. And that is why we need to think about the very word mundane in quite a different way. Because we're not Gnostics. We believe that the creation is good. And that's statement while at this point i think it's good that it's become a truism that it's good that we're saying this though it's become kind of a truism we have to think through what does that really mean that god is revealed in everything that god is flowing and working through all creatures which we encounter i think it it means something which radically reshapes even the most common of uh, of activities So I think that this reality um, really helps to illumine the inner logic of ancient traditional concepts of blood sacrifice uh, and its presence in the Bible. You see, among various nations of the world, a sacrifice is conceived as the way in which the cosmos's existence is guaranteed. I want to just note here that the origin of sacrifice is a very vexing problem if you do not affirm the reality of uh, the scriptures how is it that the various nations of the world came to perform in common this rather odd ritual it doesn't seem like something which uh, mesoamericans and mesopotamians would independently invent and yet it is utterly pervasive and plays a central role in virtually all human societies of antiquity the fact that sacrifice today is so inconceivable bears witness to the fact that christ has changed the world objectively whether or not someone acknowledges it he simply has brought the new covenant that is not something which we have to personally acknowledge in order for it to be real the world simply is under the new covenant there's no other way for it to be but uh, we tend to instinctively dismiss the idea that the world is upheld through sacrifice as a mere superstition so you have the traditions in uh, central america of the gods who give of their blood uh, to give birth to the world uh, in uh, i i uh, I feel silly <laughs> using this as an example, but it might be familiar to you in the uh, the, the Elder Scrolls universe. This is the whole idea behind the uh, the Aedra. Uh, the Aedra give of their own uh, power and life and drain themselves in doing so, which is a, a fundamental difference from the true idea of the world. But they give of their life in order to endow something else. 
uh, with life, the creation with life, and the life of the flesh is in the blood, which is why blood is so important in sacrifice. But you can see the way that this is twisted and made perverse in uh, under the influence of uh, our spiritual enemies. Um, but the thing is, I don't think that this is actually a mere superstition. Um, I think that the notion that sacrifice is the instrument through which creation is actually perpetuated and preserved in existence, was perpetuated and preserved in existence, righteous sacrifice, not idolatrous sacrifice, uh, I think that um, it is biblical. I think the Bible is shaped by this idea, and I think it is so the text I would point to is Genesis chapters 4 to 9. The story features sacrifice uh, at crucial points. And we should note here that in English, the word sacrifice almost always translates a specific offering in the Levitical system, namely the peace offering of Leviticus chapter 3. And this is the one offering which God jointly eats with some of his people in the divine liturgy this corresponds to the communion of the faithful the tribute in leviticus 2 corresponds to the great entrance and the ascension leviticus 1 that corresponds to the little entrance that's a topic for another day but um it's it's a cause of a bit of confusion that we use sacrifice to refer to all the offerings when in most english translations sacrifice refers only to one offering i just want to make that note here. So when I say sacrifice, unless otherwise noted, it refers to the general system of offerings, not the specific peace offering. Genesis 4 begins by describing how Adam's family offered tribute, and that is what it is, a mincha, a tribute offering. So a king conquers a people, and the people have to pay a tax as tribute. Uh, his family offers tribute at the cutting off of the year. Uh, James Jordan suggests, and I see no reason to uh, contest this, that this probably means this is harvest time. We know that from the rest of the Torah that the tribute offering is described as the memorial offering. Man goes out into the world, he labors in it, he works it, he takes its raw material and creatively shapes it by utilizing his hand to realize in it a pre-existing idea or structure that was present in his mind. Now the tribute is the consecration of a portion of that which is created to God. In consecrating it to God, man liturgically recognizes that the precondition for his shaping of the world and the receipt of its gifts is and always is the ongoing and gracious will of God, sustaining it in its daily existence. In making the consecration of the tribute, man gives thanks for this gracious gift and completes the circuit of God's outward gift and his inward gathering of the glorified world to his heart. So in Dionysian terms, this is procession and reversion. Man is the instrument through which the world is gathered into the divine heart or the interior life of God. So we read in uh, Genesis and elsewhere, God is consistently saying things in his heart. God said in his heart. God said in his heart, the heart of man is evil from his youth. The heart is the focal point of our deepest inclinations and dispositions and uh, intense 
emotional feelings are felt in the chest. This is something which I, I, I went to, um, I was looking at a an article in some popular science magazine about about this today. Why, why do we feel these uh, intense emotions in our chest? And the answer was, and this is fine. I mean, it's good to just say it, uh, say it openly. Uh, the answer was, uh, well, scientists really don't know. So perhaps if we are not um, able to account, given the conventional paradigm, uh, or the current paradigm, I should say, if we're not able to account for certain basic and universal human experiences, perhaps it would be unwise to insist that the biblical idea of the heart as an actual center of human thought and willing, uh, that that is archaic, outdated, and would make us an idiot if we took it seriously. Just a thought. So man is the instrument through which the world is gathered into the divine heart, and the tribute is thus the memorial, because we remember in our heart. God remembers the world, and because the world exists in virtue of his mind and his active realization of a archetype which pre-exists in his mind, in remembering the world, he keeps it in existence. So when Cain sheds the blood of Abel, he goes and he builds a city. Symbolically, the blood of his murdered brother is the threshold sacrifice upon which the city is built. So this is a common ancient practice. If you build a city, you build a new, or just a work of architecture, you, under the foundation, you will uh, uh, plant a sacrifice. And in those cultures which had human sacrifice, it could be a human sacrifice. It's the same idea in the uh, tradition of Romulus and Remus, whose basic historicity I frankly do not have uh, great reason to doubt. Um, but you can disagree with me on that. I, sh I shouldn't <laughs> throw around these like uh, controversial opinions. Um, and But it is what it is, you know. Um, and you see this idea of the threshold sacrifice in the notion of Christ as the cornerstone um, which uh, upon which the church is built. Uh, or the statement that uh, this sacrifice is foreknown before the foundation of the world. Well, the foundation of the world, this could refer to a temporal creation, but I, I think probably more uh, in the forefront of the biblical text is the idea of the foundation of a great house. And before that preposition in English as in Greek, um, Greek a preposition being, I believe in this case, pro, um, or pro, it means to be physically in front of, as well as temporally prior to. So the sacrifice of Jesus is the sacrifice which is in front of the foundation stone of the world. It's the basis for the world's existence. It's that from which the world proceeds as a concrete and real subject. The Rock of Ages rockifies us, he solidifies us. And the Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis develops this image of heaven as this immensely thick world where the water is flowing with great speed, but 
you can walk on it, but because it's flowing at the same time, you will slip and fall if you try to walk on it. And those who venture into the uh, outer regions of heaven, uh, either from the lower realms or from earth, uh, they are as ghosts by contrast to those who are thickened up in the presence of God, who are made real. So Cain's murder of Abel is a symbolic threshold sacrifice. The relationship of bloodshed to the city which Cain builds is summed up, typified, expressed, and perpetuated in the actual liturgical realization of human sacrifice. Another way that you can see this is by looking at Genesis 10. Genesis 9 recaps the fall of Adam with Ham being the Adam figure who rebels against his father Noah. Noah rests in a tent as God rests in his creation. Noah issues blessings and curses as God issued curses. Noah plants a vineyard as God plants a garden. Uh, God is the father of Adam. See Genesis 5, 1 to 2, compare uh, 1, 26 to 28, and thus Luke 3, Adam the son of God. Um, image and sonship are uh, co-constituting. Um, and then the Tower of Babel is like the uh, defiling of marriage in Genesis 6, 1 to 4. Now my point here is that uh, Nimrod is the the narrative of Nimrod in Genesis 10 matches in a literary sense the middle slot in Genesis 3 to 6. And Nimrod is a mighty slaughterer before the Lord. That is the language that is used. And we see before the Lord. Well, that is sacrificial language right there. It is before the presence of God, he does this. Um, a slaughterer before the Lord. We see in Genesis 4, the running theme is the presence of the Lord. Cain flees the presence of the Lord. They were bringing these tributes, apparently, to the gate of Eden, which was guarded by the cherubim, which corresponds in the Holy Temple to Yachin and Boaz, these two bronze pillars on the outside of the, uh, the holy place. It's an important point because the cherubim in the inner sanctuary, I don't believe, correspond to guardian cherubim. They are instead representative of the heavenly Council. That is an issue um, for another day. Um, I'm hoping to do a video at some point just going into the whole idea of what exactly do people mean by the Divine Council, because I believe that uh, the Divine Council is simply the conventional academic way of expressing what we call uh, in traditional Christianity the communion of saints. Okay, so... Um, the blood of his murdered brothers, the threshold sacrifice upon which the city is built. Uh, you see this recapitulated later in scripture. Uh, uh, Jericho, uh, it is prophesied that if Jericho is rebuilt, it will be on the blood of a detestable human sacrifice. And that is precisely what happens when Hiel rebuilds Jericho in the Book of Kings. Uh, the cosmos is wounded by murder. And for that reason, it is an active participant in this conversation. So this is a really interesting thread in the theology of Genesis. God creates the world through speech. He's always speaking in Genesis 1. The prepositions, though, develop. God speaks to, uh, or he speaks a general command, and he 
uh, addresses certain of his creatures, and then in the creation of man, he speaks to man. Man is a partner, potentially, in God's conversation. And we see throughout Genesis, God is saying things to himself, and he uses this interesting phrase, let us. Um, man is a potential conversation partner, but God, his first address was to the earth. The earth was commanded to bring forth life, fruitful, fruit trees, fruit trees, fruit-bearing fruit, and plants in which there was seed. And so when we're told that Adam was told to be fruitful and multiply, that language should already be very familiar to us. The analogy is intentional here. Fruitful and multiply, well, that first refers to plants, then it refers to animals, and then finally, man is a microcosm who stitches together earth, plants, and animals all in one sort of creature. Uh, so uh, that world which responded in obedience to God by being fruitful and multiplying now responds in horror as he who was set over it as the image of God has defiled it by blood. And so the land cries out. We should always pay attention to the specific turns of phrase used by the biblical authors. We will discover a great deal, not only about those texts, but about the concepts uh, themselves. A fundamental disjunction has emerged in this murder between the activity that is being carried out in the world by men and the activity, the operation, which actually sustains the world in existence. So God is co-constituting the world with man, and yet man is now beginning to reject his mission to oppose God and thus to oppose the only thing which could be proper, the only subject which could properly be described as existing in a real way. In our Vespers service, we call Jesus Christ the existent one. Christ our God, the existent one, always, now, and ever, and unto ages of ages. He is the existent one. He inhabits in her eternity. He is not one who exists, but is existence himself. At the end of Genesis 4, we are told that Seth uh, replaces Abel, and it was in that era that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that's the Tetragrammaton there, the covenantal name of God. This phrase, call upon the name of the Lord, is consistently used in ritual and especially sacrificial contexts. In the New Testament, it's baptism in the Eucharist. Um, if you look at the liturgical um, more provably with baptism than the Eucharist, so I think it's there under the surface uh, with, with the Eucharist. But Acts 22, look at it, um, you see it, it, it explicitly linked to baptism there. Um, in the Eucharistic hymns we sing in the Orthodox tradition, it's remarkable how uh, this phrase just comes up again and again. Uh, so, for example, when Abram comes out of Mesopotamia and he passes through the land of promise in Genesis chapter 12, uh, he builds an altar and he calls upon the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is an expression of his character in relation to the world. He is gracious, faithful, forgiving, and he's righteous. He forgives sin, but he does not clear the guilty. This is how he runs things. This is who he is. Uh, Exodus 33 to 34 is the kind of definitive canonical disclosure of God to the children of Israel and the revelation of his character in the Old Testament. 
when one calls on the name of the Lord, one is liturgically, formally, ritually asking God to act in a manner that is consistent with his divine character. And in so doing, one participates in God's management of the world. God's being divine, well, we do not become God in essence, we do not become self-existent, but in God choosing to uphold the world in a manner which befits his divine character and choosing to do so through the prayer of man for that end, man is lifted up and comes himself to exist in a divine way of being. So Seth's liturgical role in calling upon the name of the Lord is essential in sustaining the life of the world. The existence of the world, and here's the really important point, the existence of the world hangs on the continued presence of people who call on God to remember his covenant and graciously sustain its life. The world was created through speech. Speech only exists with dialogue. And God created man after his image to become a partner and a participant in this dialogue. That is the way in which man is the instrument through which creation is realized from glory to glory. And that means the inverse must also be true. When man rebels against his calling, it will have devastating effects on the creation as a whole. So we will uh, leave off there for today. I hope you enjoyed today's video. Uh, thank you for viewing. Uh, remember to like, subscribe, and uh, hit the bell uh, next to the subscribe button so that you're notified of new videos, which I think is why you subscribe. Uh, in any case, I uh, hope to talk to you again uh, very soon. Oh, I should have mentioned this at the beginning of the video. Um, I'll put it in the comment section. Uh, there will be a live stream on uh, Wednesday night, uh, and it will be, let me just get the exact, we're at the end of the video, I don't need to pause it. It will be at uh, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So you can ask whatever you want. <laughs> I can't promise that I'll answer whatever you ask, but you can ask. Um, and... I will upload the record, the full recording for patrons, though I may cut parts of it, whether large or small, for a general audience as well. So thank you again, and I will see you soon.